welcome to the Dirt Modcast. Starting this podcast to cover dirt modified racing, and this is the first episode. Uh, we're driving down the road, headed to Montpelier Motor Speedway. This is Brennan Sherman, your host, and our first guest is Todd Sherman, aka the Sherman Aider, aka General Sherman. podcast is going to be focused on dirt modified racing so I figured my first guest would be the easiest person I had to interview be Todd Sherman so first we're gonna ask Todd how did you get started in racing and thanks for joining the podcast well my dad built cars and my mom drove so it's always been in our family I worked at the racetracks when I was younger selling programs and just making money and then eventually started racing. So you say that your your mom raced. Um, how did she get involved in racing? Well, her dad raced and her brother Tom and she just always had been around racing too. And my dad really wasn't much into driving. He was more into fabrication, building, working on cars. So it worked out pretty good. So, we, racing is in our, in our family history. So, what year did you start racing, and what was the first car that you raced? It was 1984, and it was a uh, Mustang that we had bought from Dean Jones uh, that used to race years ago. Now he, he's in North Carolina and does lettering and stuff like that. It was a street stock. So what were some of the first tracks that you raced at? The Villa was the first track that I raced at because it was only 20 miles from our house. So we ran dirt street stocks there. Okay, so we're going to move into modified. So um, modified class, I think, started sometime in the 70s, like the IMCA modifieds, and then... At some point, it, it came to this area and started to get pretty popular. So, when do you first remember Modifieds being raced in northeastern Indiana? And when did you start racing Modifieds? Well, the first the first Modifieds that came to this area were somewhere around 79 or 80. And they weren't IMCA mods, but they had a similar stock front stub. They had steel bodies off of like, you know, Citations or Chevettes. They were small bodied cars like they used to run out in the New England Modifieds and stuff. But that was the first, you know, that was the first ones that, that we seen in this area. So then when, when did you decide to start racing Modifieds? What year would that have been? I would say that the Modifieds was somewhere around 1989 would probably be my guess for the IMCA style modified where you just took a Chevelle clip frame and uh, a claimer motor, all stock parts basically. At that time I didn't even run a floating rear end, we just ran a 9 inch out of the street car, so um, 1989 I believe. So. Um, when you raced the Modifieds, did you start off on dirt or asphalt? Or back then, did people just run them on both all the time? 
Well, some people ran them on both, but originally it was asphalt. We ran the IMSS series, which Tom Ish was in charge of, and we ran the main tracks were Bearfield, Avila, Plymouth, South Bend, the ones that, you know, the ones that we ran. So, um, growing up, I remember going to the dealer's choice and then hearing about the dealer's choice before I was born. So, you know, just for the people that don't know, um, there was a racing magazine called the Mark Times, and the guy that uh, owned the newspaper was Dick Beebe. And at some point, I don't know the exact year, but he started promoting a race called the Dealer's Choice. And it was kind of a end of the year race, and it could be three or four days. Um, and lots and lots of cars would be there, and it, the race kind of grew over time. But in those middle 90s, um, you were, sounds like, and from what I have read and you've said in the pictures I've seen, most of the time you were running asphalt modifieds in the middle 90s early in the middle 90s or late 90s I guess but then you would go to the dealer's choice which was a dirt race and you'd take your asphalt car and had pretty good success there so could you talk a little bit about that well we ran asphalt all year long and at the end of the year uh, when they had the dealer's choice they'd get 500, 600 cars so the track would get really black and really slick almost like asphalt but uh, we decided we go to have fun and, and the first year actually um, I was driving another car for somebody else and we put Mark Tarleton in our car and he won the first dealer choice that we made an attempt at in 1991 so that that was our first dealer's choice and then I ended up winning you know four more of those uh, up until I think 1999 maybe been the last one the last one that I went to so 1991 Mark Charlton went now who, whose car was that it was your car there was seven there was seven guys we decided to go IMCA racing um, we ended up with like seven thousand six hundred dollars or something in the whole car motor and all and we had seven owners and one person put up the money and the rest of the seven of us made $65 payments for however long it was but that way we could all be part owners in the car and one person obviously fronted the money to, to get the car and get it rolling and that's how all the IMCA racing started. So who were the seven people and did you get to drive that car or did you got to drive it some of the time? In the I did drive it some, but Mark drove it first because I had another obligation driving for somebody else. So uh, Max Heil was inst instrumental in, in getting it started, and uh, I think his daughter fronted the money, and then we had to pay her back. Uh, so it was Max Heil, Floyd Fell, Les Sherman, Todd Sherman, Dwayne Murphy, James Marlowe. I'm drawing. I'm drawing a blank on the other one. Kind of putting me on the spot, but I know there was. I know there was seven of us. So you guys teamed up and got that car together. I've never heard this story before, but you took it to the dealer's choice, and Mark Tarleton won. 
and then you won as a driver at the dealer's choice four times. I know it started off, maybe it didn't start off, but it was at Crystal Speedway for a long time, and then sometime in the late 90s, it moved to Butler Speedway. And I only really remember going to the dealer's choice at Butler Speedway, although I may have been there, I was pretty young when it was at Crystal, but do you remember what years you won, and then what it was like moving into a different track? Did it have the same feel? Was it was it still the same event? Well, trust me, we we pretty well dominated that event for several several years, and even now when we get on super slick tracks, it's like, man, I used to really dominate on those dry slick tracks, and I say it goes back to one, the cars didn't bar up, and two, we had a either a 289 or a 302 Ford motor that didn't make any power and, and you didn't have to have throttle management. You just you could just hold it to the floor and everybody else was running, you know, 350s and 406s and I think it was mostly the motor combination and obviously you gotta be a decent driver, but I think that we dominated it because of the motor combination mostly. So just to summarize your career, it sounds like you started off in, in street stocks, racing dirt, and then we won't really talk about this very much, but you ran some asphalt super late model or outlaw late model um, in the early 90s or late 80s as well, and then you kind of transitioned into just doing modifieds in the early 90s, and you pretty much stuck with that, doing mainly asphalt racing with some dirt races thrown in at the end of the year then um, what what year did uh well before we get to when you went to just dirt let's just talk a little bit about um, when you started uh, working for Wayne Gibson at Eagle race cars talk about you going to work for him and building those Eagle race cars right that would have been right before you basically switched over to dirt racing so talk about that a little bit how did you get hooked up with uh, Wayne Gibson building cars for him and starting a new business? And what was that like with those cars? Well, my dad was one of the original guys. Him and Roger Fry, they didn't live far apart, but they both kind of built cars and tinkered with cars. And so Wayne had became friends, and those guys kind of mentored uh, Wayne. So my dad was a you know, a friend of Wayne's or whatever, and, and uh, me and my dad had a fabrication business, and my dad had had a heart attack, and things was getting kind of tough, and so Wayne had bought my dad's welding business, and then I went to work for him doing the fabrication stuff for uh, for uh, Pro Systems which he had started, he had sold his part of QSI and then started Pro Systems. And then when, when we came there, uh, all of us liked racing, so that's where Eagle Racing came from. And Wayne kind of designed a car with, you know, with advice from me and some other guys that was there, but that's how that all came about. So I remember uh, one of the first years I really remember going to the track a lot was probably 1999 and that year you raced at Plymouth Speedway and I remember going there every Sunday after church we would go to Plymouth Speedway and 
just from my memory, which, you know, I was only, well, let's see, me. I guess I would have been five years old or four years old, probably, I don't know, five, I guess, or almost five. I remember going there, and I remember you won quite a few races, and you had a good year that year in that Eagle car. Um, can we talk a little bit about that season? Well, that was that was the inaugural year, and a few of my friends of mine, uh, Brad Roberts and Chris Place. I think Brad uh, Roberts actually had uh, Eagle One or whatever you call it. One of the first. Mine was actually the first one, but he was actually the first customer. So, uh, and and I had made a couple bets because people were doubting, you know, what we could do or whatever, and I'd made a bet that that we would win between me and Brad and a couple other guys we'd win at least 10 features that year and I almost won that many myself so I got taken out to Chili's for supper for that bet so the first year went really really well and then it kind of snowballed from there and there was quite a few of those cars built so what happened at Eagle or well we don't have to talk about that but basically you left Pro System slash Eagle Racing, and then just kind of ended up starting your own business with Sherman Enterprises. And at first, you were going to get a job somewhere, but you just kind of had people coming in wanting welding done, and you were doing it for them. And then had some people asking for cars, and it kind of snowballed from there. But you know, talk a little bit about the start of your business of Sherman Enterprises when you went and had your own business again. Well, I was I was going to get a job for somebody else. And uh, I had interviewed at two or three different places, and finding a job wasn't going to be hard to do because I'd done a lot of work for National Serval and some of the local businesses, and they were all, you know, more than interested in hiring me. But so I went to my shop, and I'm trying to make my decision up. And a local gentleman that does paving came in, and somebody had stole his dump truck, his trailer it had his paver his packer and his bobcat on it so he lost everything that he had and uh, he wanted to know if I would extend his he bought a new trailer and he wanted to know if I would extend it and so that he could get all of his equipment on the trailer because he had to buy all new and uh, that's that was the first job that I got that was kind of a big one and then then another job and then another job and then some of the farmers started stopping in and it was just like before I knew it, I had enough work that I really didn't need to go get a job somewhere else. And I, uh, and then when and I got a law in the action, I decided I would build and design my own race car. And then that's that's how it kind of went from doing you know just the fabrication into the race car stuff. So I know, and I think it was in 2000 that. Did you get a car from Mike Hollifield at Buzzard Race Cars? I did. I, I actually, there was a timeline in there where I wanted to go racing, and all I was doing was fabri fabrication, and Mike was a great guy, and kind of, uh, I wasn't really a dirt racer, didn't know a lot about it, just other than we'd go to Dealer's Choice and win, and Mike was in a lot of those Dealer's Choices with uh, when I won, so he was more than happy to work with me. He cut me a deal on a car, and, you know, he was one of the first guys that really taught me about dirt racing. 
Okay, so, and then when, what, when would you say you built your first car to race dirt with? What year do you think that would have been? Probably 2001, because I ran the Buzzard car for a couple of years, probably 99 and 2000, I would guess. And then I was in the process of building my new car. Uh, as I was in the process of building a, a new building, the big shop, because all we worked out of was that 30 by 40 building for years. So when you uh, when you started building your own cars, um, you know you had already you had already had some experience because you know like we talked about earlier, you worked for Eagle building cars. But before you um, started building cars at Eagle, you know how did you? learn how to build cars or who are some of the people that, that taught you obviously you know your dad built cars but was there any other uh, special training that you had that let, let you build cars well just general fabrication skills is, is pretty crucial but and my dad taught me most of that but I had bought our first IMCA modified we bought from day by so uh at, at one point, um, I went over to Dave's a few times and helped him build some cars when we got slow in the fabrication deal. And then I took a welder over there and let him use it because he was getting really busy at the time. And uh, so, a lot of the ideas, you know, when you when you look at race cars, uh, Larry Harp was a really good chassis builder. And the first one that I built uh, myself. I took my tubing down to Lee Harp, and he'd been up, he'd been up the main cage and all that stuff, and then I went back home and, and welded everything together. So that was actually the first car I built, and I built that with a 110 plug-in welder that plugged into the wall. Um, now, what year are we talking for, the, for that? That was probably '94. Would be pretty sure it was 94 and what's really really cool about that is uh, that car is still being raced and uh, it's the one that Casey Spiller has now Steve Minnick uh, Dale Sherman at Eagle Racing at the time he had bought it and put a clip on the front of it and then it got sold and then Steve Minnick done his magic to it done you know changed some stuff around but the main center section and all that stuff was uh, original from 1994 what so, I know going just to the chassis side since that's kind of where this conversation is turning to um, sounds like you had some experience you know putting cages in cars or building street stocks with your dad and then you did buy some cars from Dave Bice and, and then you did a little bit on your own and then you went to work for Eagle or Pro Systems, and then they started Eagle Racing after you went there and built cars there, and then basically you had a lot of experience fabricating and some experience doing car building, and which led to you to try to start building more cars instead of just doing general fabrication. Um, probably skipping a few years here, but you know, you basically in what was it, 2000 or 2001, when did you basically just start doing? only dirt racing what year was that 2003 was my full first full year of of dirt racing and that was at 
you know, Lima land mostly. We go to Montpelier and places like that. I ended up third in the points at Lima the first year that I raced that I raced there. So I've only missed one race at Lima in however many years that's been. Uh, 18 years. It'd be eight, eight or it'd be 19 seasons. 19 seasons. They took one off, so 18 seasons because they didn't race in 2020. So. And you missed one race since 2003. And that was a non-point race, and it was after their points was over, and I was leading the points at Montpelier, and they paid special money, but I didn't want to give up a chance of winning a track championship, so I went to Montpelier. Did you win the track championship? I did win the track championship, and Terry Hall won the Invitational. It was a 2000 to win, so it was kind of a it was kind of a struggle to make a decision, you know, take a chance at winning two grand or or uh, give up a championship. Okay, so um, you know, I I remember 2003. I remember a lot of those years. I don't I don't remember some years as well, but I do remember 2003 and going to Lima Land that year. And I remember you won one one feature at Lima Land that year and I got third in the points and I remember like going doing the King of the Core mile and basically ever since then really Lima Land's been probably one of my favorite tracks um, but you know over the over the years um, you know you won some races but you know you really didn't win a lot of races in any one season probably until 2004 so um, there's not a lot of like documentation that I can find anywhere as far as like how many wins you had before 2000 and uh, before 2004. But talk about like you know races that you may have won before then and like maybe just a rough estimate of you know how how successful was Todd Sherman racing before 2004. And obviously you won four dealer's choices and we didn't really talk about this, but you know dealer's choice was. 100 plus modifieds you know so that was a, a really big race to win when you have that many people there but you know did you win very many races before then and you know if you have an idea of how many there were there's anything you'd like to talk about in your racing career before 2004 well we won quite a few street stock races at a villa we have i think we still have a track record there from way back when but you know, we won our fair share. I mean, uh, average fair year, three to four feature wins. We had some where there was eight or nine, but uh, it, at that point in my racing career, I call it, you know, racing with one hand tied behind your back. You love racing. You want to go racing. Don't have a lot of money. Um, some guys uh, spend a lot more money on motor programs and stuff. At one point, you know, we, ne we never really wanted to claim motors, but... I felt like that I was being outmotored at one point, and so we did claim a motor. And, uh, the next week we got to the track late, and I had to start on the tail, and somebody had made a remark that there ain't no way he'll get in the top four. We'd claim that motor back, you know, because I was starting on the tail. And, and you know, if I started up front, I was smooth enough. I could stay up front, and I might even get a win, but I wasn't going to start at the back and pass everybody. Well, we put that motor in, and... I went from the back to the front. I ended up third. I was, you know, right in the hunt to win it. And 
it looked like feeding time at the zoo after the race was over everybody trying to claim that motor because it wasn't my motor i'd claimed it the week before so they knew they wasn't going to make anybody mad if they claimed it so i ended up getting claimed and at that point i realized that i was i was getting out motored so uh, we up it, later on in my racing career when money was a little better and we had a little bit more help then my motor programs got better and then i started winning so, um, just for the people that may listen to this, just to give them an idea, um, I don't know exactly how the IMCA claim rule works now, but with UMP, um, it's very restrictive as to, you know, how you can claim and who you can claim and when you can claim, and, you know, it's, I think, five or six hundred dollars, and you have to swap engines. You know, when you claimed that engine from, I think, was it Roger Trulowski? I think it was, yeah. So you claimed Roger Trulowski. You know, what year was that? How much did it cost? And did you have to do an engine swap? And how common was it for engines to be claimed back then? It was pretty common to have an engine claimed. Um, it was $325. And I, I think the record service got $25 of it for, for pulling the motor out. So... It wasn't really enough money to build a motor, but the whole idea was is to keep the cost low. And Terlosky's always had good engine. What they were spending a lot of money on them. They weren't like, you know, $10,000 engines or anything like that, but they'd done a good job of porting their heads and finding parts and getting, you know what I mean? They just, they done the engines themselves, so, uh, but they always ran really, really well. What year would you estimate that being that you that the claim has entered. Oh wow, so 91, 92, somewhere around 92 or 93 would be my guess. You know, back then before, um, before people started spending big money on engines and nobody claimed anymore, how much do you think the average guy was spending? Like, like you said, your engines probably weren't strong enough. Now, how much were guys like you spending, and then how much do you think guys like Terlowski or guys that had really good engines, how much were they spending on engines back then? Well, I mean, it would just be a guess, but we were spending $1,000 maybe. You know, by the time you get rings and bearings and maybe a set of pistons or, I mean, we were running cheap, cheap stuff. And I'd say them guys are more like 3500 and at that time we thought that was a lot of money. So how much were, were the races paying to win back then? Most of them paid three to four hundred dollars to win. Okay, so if you had to ballpark it, you know how many wins? You know, you've almost been racing for for forty years now, so we can almost break it into you know you started you're born in 1964, you started racing in '84, so we'll break it down from '84 to 2003 be the first 20 years and 2004 to 2023 which is just a couple years away but you know the first half of your career first 20 years of your career how many races do you think you won i i really have no idea i i mean i never really kept track of it just because nobody really cared whether we won but us i mean to keep a bunch of stats wouldn't have really proved anything but so from 84 to what year? 84 to 2003. So that was 20 years. Three, 
I'd say somewhere around a hundred. I don't know. Okay. That would just be a, a guess. Not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just trying to see. So then, you know, you in the early 2000s, you kind of partnered up with uh, Mel Warwick, and he took care of your engines and he took care of the cars, and that is basically probably when you would say that your engine program turned around. So. Talk a little bit about racing with Mel and basically that 2004 season because that's probably, you know, most people, there's a lot of people that, especially um, in the older days of racing, a lot of the racers that I know of quit in their 40s or in their late 30s. Probably due to back then the cars weren't as safe and they figured if they escaped death or injury for that long, it was time to get out. But, you know, you really probably had your best season to date when, when in 2004 when you were turning 40 years old that year so talk a little bit about that time period of your racing with Mel and have starting to really have some good success after you would say that you didn't have one hand time behind your back anymore well it's it's a technology driven sport and you, the person interviewing me, has made me really step up to the plate as far as technology, but the reason that I started winning in 2004 was multiple reasons, but uh, I teamed up with Mel, and he did have good motors. He bought my asphalt car, and his son drove and, and ran really well at Bearfield, and I think he won a championship there, and, uh, and then his son quit racing, and, and Mel wanted to know if I'd be interested in teaming up with him. Well, I said, yes, I'd love to. I was trying to get my business started. He was doing the maintenance on the car, the motor, all the stuff. And we had met with Mark Noble, which who probably has won 800 A-mains in his career. And he was friends with Pastor Steve Fowler. And we met with him in Indianapolis at the PRI show. And I took my notebook along with me and... Uh, He's won the IMCA Super Nationals I don't know how many times. I mean, he everywhere I went, he was winning. He won the baseball race when I was there, 10,000 to win. Blew his motor up uh, hot lap and didn't get a qualify. Had to start on the tail of a D or a C and ended up winning the A main by coming through all them races. But anyways, to make a long story short, I took my notebook with me and we were talking about how much left rear to run in the car and he told me to run 20 pounds. And this is a three-link car that didn't bar up, so it doesn't even play into effect today because the technology keeps changing, the cars keep getting faster. And so I said, "Well, I'm running 300 pounds," and he goes, "Well, you're the ones asking. You're the one asking the questions, not me." And I'm like, "Yeah, you're right. I'm I'm not questioning you. I'm just, you know." So, anyways, I I remember the first race at Lima in 2004. I I cut it in half. I went to like 180 or 150. And the car got better. And then I went to 80 because I didn't believe him. And it's just like 20 pounds, it just doesn't make any sense. So I just kept dropping it and dropping it and dropping it until I got to 20 pounds. And then I started winning. Every, everywhere I went, I was winning. Montpelier, uh, Gas City, Lima Land. So my breakthrough year was when I teamed up with Mel. I had better motors. And I teamed up with a guy that was winning that knew what to do and I kind of wanted to share this Brennan didn't ask the question but I put 
Tyler Royd's building my shock. So I, I put him in my car last year at the Kokomo Clash. Never drove a dirt car in his life. He just wanted to try it. So our deal was that here we got a shock guy that's really good, and he, he dominates the asphalt stuff. If we get him fired up about dirt, then that's that much more input that we're going to get to make our cars better so that we can better service our customers. So we're on our way to the track right now, and Tyler's going to drive my car. I'm not retiring. We just want to learn as much as we can, and we want Tyler to, you know, have a feel for the car, and then that way it'll help better our program. Okay, so... Um... Trying to think about what else we can talk about. Um, so we're on our way to Montpelier Motor Speedway. This is the Dirt Modcast, and uh, so far we've talked to Todd Sherman about you know how he got into racing a little bit and what class of cars he ran, how he got into modifieds, and started off with a little bit of dirt racing. Basically, kind of did a real brief summary of you know the first 20 years of his racing career. And then we kind of got into his breakout year of 2004. Um, you know, one, once you started winning some races in 2004, um, I did some research, and the best I can estimate, and this is based on, you know, uh, UMP, what they've posted on their website for how many wins you had, because almost there was a few years you would win some races that weren't UMP sanctioned, but. Um, you know, I've estimated it was probably around 170 to 175 feature wins that you had from 2004 to you know, 2021. So, um, you know, that's a that's a really long time period of racing. But um, you know, you said your engines got better, and then said that you took some setup advice from Mark Noble. Um, do you think that your driving got better or do you, I mean, some people like in NASCAR, uh, the big focus is on young drivers. And I think in racing, it seems like that it's easier for guys that are a little bit older to, um, to have some success because racing is, I think a lot of it's mental and the physical aspect of racing, except for maybe in like really extreme track conditions, the physical part of racing is probably secondary to the mental part. I mean, as long as you can, you know, push the pedal and move the steering wheel and make decisions quickly, you know, it's mainly mental decision making. So do you think that your driving got any better from, I mean, do you think that your driving's gotten better over the years? Do you think you can always improve or do you, I mean, um, how much would you attribute to your cars and how much would you attribute to your driving or, or maybe confidence once you start winning is the confidence. What's, what makes, what, what's the secret to winning for someone getting into racing? Do they just need to, to race a lot? Is that the biggest factor or what, what do you, what's your thoughts on that? Um, I don't know that a guy has to race a lot, but it's, it is a lot of mental, and guys like Scott Bloomquist, they always use, you know, crossbones and skulls and no weak links, and that mentally he probably was the strongest driver that there was. You're not going to beat me. You know, I'm the greatest, and 
kind of the Muhammad Ali, you know, technique. But uh, I think that the reason I love dirt racing so much is because a lot of it is about the driver and, you know, picking the right spot on the track, being, you know, knowing where to run at, where not to run at, trusting your car. And then once you do start winning and your confidence gets better, yeah, I think it, it makes you a better driver just because you trust yourself, you trust your car. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, and I, and there's times, you know, signal guys really help you out because they can tell you where to run out. Sometimes, the, you know, the driver doesn't pick the right spot and the signal guy tells him where to run at. And I think that in the driving part of it, if, if you're smarter and you're not hazing your tires and you, you know, get in the right spot on the track and you don't make any mistakes, you're obviously going to be a lot more successful. If you get your nuts crunched, you know, every time you go out, get your car all tore up, you're not going to win races. So, um, when you started racing, were there any uh, drivers that you kind of modeled yourself after, either just how they carried themselves or maybe how they maintained their cars or even maybe their driving style or the way they drove their car? I mean was there ever any drivers that you really looked up to i know you, your mom raced and your uncle tom raced and well, you know, uncle tom won quite a few races um, and had a pretty successful racing career well my uncle tom was one of my first heroes just because he you know he was my uncle and tom was like a tom or like a Scott Bloomquist type guy. It was like no weak links and, you know, I'm going to win. He had the confidence, you know, and he he knew how to wheel a race car and uh, he won a lot of races. So he, he was probably one of my first heroes, but, you know, you got to look at guys like Denny Nyeri, which, you know, he's asphalt. He was just a very humble guy, won tons and tons of races, um, yeah, I don't, I, I respect a lot of drivers, so it's hard, you know, it's hard to really just point out one, because there's, there's lots of good race car drivers, and some of them are still racing with one hand tied behind their back, and, uh, so, somebody, we was talking about, you know, who the greatest drivers were one time, so, well, you'd have to look at the stats, well, to me, sometimes the stats don't show the actual greatness of a driver. You know, it's like I tell Tyler Rory, you know, he says, well, how many, how many features have you won? And I said, well, I said, I never really kept track of it, but it has to be close to 300, maybe above or slightly below. I don't know, but he goes, man, that's crazy. And I don't know how many he's won, but it's quite a few, but, you know, we'll say 50, but his are all major events and he doesn't, he doesn't run weekly shows. He just runs major events where, you know, there's really really fast cars and they're all they're all money chasers you know so it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to tell and i tyler is i've watched him race enough times that he uh, is very patient he doesn't get impatient he hardly ever gets in wrecked because you know he he's got a really good car and he's a really good driver so he don't have to take any chances and that makes a big difference and with this dirt racing it's going to be good for him because you can't be patient. It's only 20 laps, and you got to get her. Sometimes you have to get her done in a hurry. So, 
it's going to really test his, you know, test his driving and, and the mental part of his game. So, um, one thing that you said uh, made me think of this, um, you know, talking about people that you raced with, um, were there any people that you were, let's say, did, didn't like to race with, or maybe right, maybe not necessarily didn't like to race with, but was there anybody that was like a rival, or that you always felt like, man, if I could just beat this guy, I would be winning a lot more races? Oh, I don't necessarily think that I mean me and Terry Hall were friends and, and still are friends for all these years and our cars maybe have touched each other a couple times and, and I mean he started the same time I did back in 84 85 or whatever at Avila so I don't know how many times we've raced together but I have great respect for him and his driving ability and, uh, and there is some guys that I don't like to race against because they they race with great disrespect and um, but those are we don't have to name any names well it's like a friend of mine told me one time you know he mentioned the guy's name and he says I know you don't like to race with him but he sure is fun to watch because he is a maniac and I'm like yeah probably from the grandstand view he probably is fun to watch so so um Looking back on your career, you know, basically you've been involved in modifieds for 30 years and basically dirt modifieds exclusively for about 20 years. You know, there's been a lot of changes in the cars and, you know, right now there's a big thing going on with, you know, UMP is um, wanting to change some of the rules and maybe be a little bit more, they really didn't make any, in my opinion, there was no substantial changes in the body rules but they were wanting to change the sail panels and the deck rake but you know what are some of the biggest changes in in modifieds or more specifically dirt modifieds that you've seen over the years and are what changes would you say are good changes and are there any changes that have happened that are maybe bad changes that you don't like well Anything that adds cost, you know, sometimes I, I just don't like it just because I, I was in that boat before where it's like I didn't even run a full floating rear end. I just run a nine inch out of a street car. And then I realized that that's dangerous because when you bust an axle, you lose your tire and then you wipe out and you tear up more stuff than the cost of a, a floating rear end. So I changed my attitude on that. And then when they start allowing the Burt transmissions, it's like, oh, there's just another cost. Well, if you take care of your Burt transmission, I mean, I got this, I had the same Burt and the same bell housing for almost 17 years. And if you take care of your stuff and it doesn't get tore up, you know, winterize your pump, uh, rebuild your transmission, don't, don't load your car with your Burt, you know, with your Burt and burn up your clutch disc. I mean, if you take care of your stuff some of those costs ain't bad and I you know I was against some of it in the beginning but then after after the fact it's like you know what that's probably a good probably a good rule when they went to quick changes I stayed with the nine inch I'll just put aluminum I'll just put aluminum pig in mine well then when you start adding up the cost of multiple aluminum pigs and all that stuff then it's like well the quick change is probably better but I blame UMP for letting the body rules get out of a hand because you got a handful of guys that 
cheat the body rules to the max and then when everybody else does it then now you want to take it away from us after they after they've used it against us for multiple years and then when you finally do it i the the rick the rake rule was four inches for I don't know how long, so I thought, you know, I can see, physically see with my eye that everybody has more than four inches. So I built a car with six inches of rake a couple of years ago. It was 2019 you built, you built it, or no, it would be two, you built it in 2020 for 2020 season. And I put six inches of rake in and I thought, I'm going to be illegal and I don't care because I want this, because I know some of them guys had eight inches. And then they make an amendment to the rule, and they say, oh, you can run six inches of rake now. So now I build a car. Now I'm legal, and everybody else is going to run eight or ten. They're not even policing the rules that they got. They need to take a string from the front of the deck to the rear of it and find out how much drop they got in it. And as long as they ain't over the 38 or 39 inches in the back, if they make that measurement an inch and a half, and if a guy's got more than that, he's illegal, they either fix it or they don't race. So I don't have a problem with rules. I like rules. It keeps stuff under control. But I mean, you got you got weight rules, and we only got one track that we go through that has a set of scales. It's like it's just the easiest thing to detect there is is weight, and then they don't weigh cars. So so um, one thing that that I've been thinking about here and you hearing you say these things is you know how I think UMP's rule enforcement has, has not been very good and I think a lot of people will agree with that but it seems like a lot of times like there's been a few times that UMP has made changes to the rules that maybe have been for the better so when they there wasn't like people were running quick changes and getting away with it um, before um before they changed the rule. So obviously everyone had nine, as far as I know, everyone had nine inches and then UMP said, okay, we think quick changes are gonna be better for racing. Which if you do the math on it, a quick change makes way more sense than around a nine inch. Unless you already have 20 gear sets for nine inch. But still, um, basically it, it makes total sense and it's more economical than running a nine inch. Um, so they that, now that's one example of a rule change that I think was for the better. But I think a lot of times, the uh, the rule change that the rule changes that UMP has made over the years have basically been in response to the chain the stuff that the drivers were doing and getting away with. So you know it used to say OEM ball joint, which would mean you have to run an OEM ball joint, and then they started letting people get away with running non OEM ball joints. That's just you know one example. Um, you know what what do you think? The, the driver's responsibility is when they're just out overtly breaking rules and what do you think the sanctioning body's perspective is? It's, instead of them getting out ahead of it with rules or just enforcing the rules they have, a lot of times it seems like they're just accommodating the cheating. So people cheat or they bend the rules or break the rules and then after that UMP will come in with a new rule that either outlaws it or maybe restricts it slightly or they just write into the rules that it's legal. So I guess my question to you would be, um, you know, how can UMP get out in front of all of this? Or, you know, should should they not should they not make the rules more lenient with people when there's widespread cheating going on? What, what's your opinion on that? 
well, they've, I mean, once it gets out of hand, it's hard to rein it back because my cars are already built and for me to actually, to change the, the deck height, I have to totally change my interior, which changes your gauges and the way everything's mounted and it's a, it's a nightmare, an absolute nightmare and it, it's, it's their fault, it's not ours, you know, other people were getting away with it. And then we're like, well, hey, we want to compete. So if they're not going to do anything about it, we got to do the same thing. It's either that or complain. And then all you are is a whiner because you're getting beat. So we just do what they're doing. And then so we can be competitive. And, and a long time ago, I used to I used to complain a lot about, you know, guys' cars or what they should and shouldn't do and figured out. If, if you complain, you become the target. So you might as well just, if they're letting them get away with it, just do it. And you know, that's kind of the mindset that I think a lot of people have adopted. And you know, even, and I've listened to Mark Martin's podcast and he talked about how they were bending the rules back in the ASA, or maybe it was an ARCA. Anyways, when he was racing back then, now they would make changes to their cars that maybe weren't within the rules, but the other guy would do something, so they would do something, and it was basically, you know, as long as the rule guy isn't going to say nothing, then it's, you know, we're going to keep pushing the limit, and I think that's probably what's happened is if certain people can get away with doing certain things to their cars, even though if you read the rules, um, it's not necessarily legal, but they're letting them do it, so then everyone kind of starts pushing the ledge, pushing the limit. And before you know it, everybody's cars are legal. Well, then they'll just change the rules and say, okay, this is legal now. Um, and if, I think maybe the key to, to kind of stopping that would be if someone is breaking the rules, they need to stop it immediately. That way other people, that way half the field doesn't have that illegal thing on their car or legal body or whatever, whatever part of the car is illegal. Then if everyone has it, then they can say, well, you know, now more than half the people would have to change their cars. So we're not going to make it illegal um i mean i kind of remember i mean i might be mi mixing this up but i think as far as i know the rule always said you had to run an oem center link and then guys started running aftermarket center links so then they said okay you can run an aftermarket center link so a few more people bought them and well then the next year they said no you can't run an aftermarket center link so then and we never did run an aftermarket center link. we always just ran the stock one but um that's uh, so it's kind of a catch-22 of you know are you, you either got to get it and force it right away or if you don't then you're kind of stuck you just got to let maybe let it slide um, so you know there's been some rule changes um, over the years and there's been some things that have changed a lot on the cars as far as the bodies go um, as far as like maybe like things that really have not been enforced per se or that there weren't rules for or against, um, let's just say shock absorbers. You know, shock absorbers, they, there's really not a lot of rules about what kind of shocks that you can or can't run. Um, and that's one thing that has changed a lot. And basically that's changed because drivers have been looking for better performance and to go faster. And there's been some big improvements in the quality of the products that have been getting used. Um, and 
maybe not just specifically on shock absorbers, but if you watch videos and get lap times from cars in the 90s racing on dirt and early 2000s, and you can compare them to the lap times that people are running today and the speeds that the cars carry, I think it's it's objective we can say that dirt modifieds have gotten a lot faster. Um, I guess two questions about that. Do you think that is it's better that the cars are faster? That's the racing better? Is it better from a driver perspective that the car handles better? And do you think that um, that the added cost is justified? of going that faster. Do you think we'd be better with the slower cars? Everyone having a slower car. Well, I was I was told, uh, you know, when they start allowing them aluminum calipers and stuff, it's like the calipers we run are, you know, at that time were $10 at AutoZone. I mean, it doesn't get any cheaper than that. And then now you're going to allow an aluminum caliper. And I was told by an official that well, we're going to allow the aluminum calipers because they're they're made in America. They weigh the same and they cost the same. And I'm just scratching my head. It's like, you think an aluminum caliper weighs the same as a steel one and that they cost the same? I can buy mine for $10 at AutoZone and the aluminum ones are $100. I just think that they're... That, their job is they they want to make money for the world racing group or whoever it is and i get it it's a business but i think they need to take in you know the cost for the racers so that the racers can keep racing the, the car counts are dwindling and dwindling everywhere you go they're dwindling and dwindling and then the modifieds people from sprint cars and late models and all these other classes are kind of gravitating to the modifieds because there's so many of them and so many tracks to run and it was the affordable class but eventually it's going to be that class that people get out of and go back to street stocks or thunder cars or whatever because the cost gets too high okay that reminds me of one of your sayings um, you know nowadays we hear a mod to mean you know the top class of modifieds and then b mod is you know a lower tier of modifieds and the b mod is maybe trying to attempt to achieve what the a mods used to be and they call them sport mods b mods there's all kinds of names for them and there's a lot of different rule sets for the we'll just call them we'll just call them b mods but the b mod classes you know some of them restrict the engine some of them restrict the suspension some of them don't restrict the suspensions they just restrict the engines. Um, you know, do I think a lot of people forget um, that when they first started, if, if you heard people talking about modifieds or you heard somebody or seen something written about the modifieds, a lot of times they called them E mods. And, you know, what now I'll let you say, what, what you're saying about the E mods or, what, you know, what the. Well, what it's still. It's for. still it still says E-Mod on the UMP tire, which is economy mod, but the, the only thing economy about them is the payoff, and uh, that's one of my sayings, and the other one, uh, one of the officials, you know, I was telling him about the aluminum calipers, and, you know, you might as well take the claim out of the racing, do you have any idea how much money people are spending on motors, and he tells me 
The only thing that keeps it affordable is the claim. That's how delusional they are. And uh, he says to me, he says, well, if you don't like this class, why don't you move down to the B-Mods? And I said, that's what this class was when it started. You guys ruined it. Now you gotta have to start another class so that the guys that need to get out can move down to the B-Mod class. Well, you know, what What do you think can be done? I mean, it, I think it's a, a thing always said in racing by all, you know, racers and promoters and, um, you know, even my mom's, she's doom and gloom, you know, it's, everything's bad, you know. A lot of people have a glass half full perspective on racing because they think it's just, it can't keep going on like this, it's just too expensive and people can't afford it and I know racing is very expensive and I think part of that is due to, you know, some of the stuff happened outside of racing being the economy and the pandemic, plandemic, whatever you want to call it. Um, but what kind of things do you think, we got two sides of the equation. One is the cost of racing, which somewhat's determined by what racers are willing to spend. And then you have you know, the payouts, you know, which is what's going to offset some of that cost, you know, two sides of that coin. What, what can be done to control cost? And what do you think can be done to try to improve payouts? Or is that possible? What, what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, the bottom line is a, a racetrack is a business and they have to make money. And the only way that you can, can make big payouts is to have big crowds. So the racing has to be good so people want to come back. And uh, you'd have to have big, big fan counts for tracks to pay the kind of money you know, that, that we want to race for. I'd love to race for a 1,000 to win every week and 900 per second. Most of the tracks want to put all the money on the very, very top, and then once you get past third or fourth place, you're not even getting enough money to cover your tire bill. Um, one thing that they could do, and the engine builders are against it, but the LS motor that you can get in the junkyard, the 5.3 is plenty enough power to win at most tracks. Um, I'd love to see them, you know, I guess I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, you can run those motors now, but I guess the aluminum blocks came stock in some of them motors. The crate motor, the CT525 that we're running is legal and it doesn't make a lot of power, but it's been good enough to, you know, win a championship at Lima the last two years, uh, the last two years that they ran, they didn't run in 2020, so they, they're telling us we can run that motor a hundred nights, well, Lima Land only ran like eight features, so I could race there for 12 years with the same motor, that sounds pretty good to me, but anything they can do to make the cost of the motors maybe better, um, the tire deal obviously is a big one. It's not as bad on the dirt as it is on the asphalt. We don't put tons and tons of new tires on. and I don't think Nick Hoffman does either, and he probably wins more than anybody. Uh, he probably grinds his tires and sipes them, and, and he's not made of money, so I'm assuming he's trying to keep his profits up or his losses down, whichever way it is. But uh, Yeah, I'd say... 
tires and motors are the two two of the biggest things. You know, it, tires and motors are, are definitely a big thing. Um, I think one thing that, you know, shameless plug, you know, we build our own cars and we sell cars to other people. Um, you know, for us, the cost of the cars really isn't out of hand because we have a parts business, so we can save a little money that way. We make a lot of our own parts for our cars. Um, you know, some racers, they're too busy with their regular job making good money to be able to do a lot of stuff themselves, so I understand why they have to buy it why it makes sense for them um, but you know, I think for us the cost of the cars really hasn't got out of hand setting aside the fact that you know we did buy a pull down rig to try to make our cars better and then we did do some data acquisition testing to try to help make our cars fit <coughs> faster excuse me but um, I think a big expense for people like other than you know our racing program is the cars because when you look at what people are wanting for a, a new car, um, it's it's big big money to get a new car from one of the um, premier brands that you know everybody wants for whatever reason. And sometimes I think they could make older cars go just as fast, but they think that they got to have what the other guys have. They don't want to either learn how their cars works or maintain their car like it needs to be. So sometimes there's cars out there that could be a lot faster than they are. They're just not getting maintained right. People aren't willing to put in the work. So they'd rather just pay somebody else that's already done all the work. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, the cars we build could be an option for some people to say, to be able to get a car that is new and reasonably priced and can still be competitive with cars that cost twice as much. So instead of just, we're not just crying about the cost of racing or that it's out of hand, we're trying to have a solution to the increasing cost. You know, we've put a lot of money and time into developing it, but we're still, you know, able to sell a car, you know, at a reasonable price that I think people could be competitive in. So I guess that's maybe one solution to the the expense side of it. So, you know, based on what you've said, I I think um, you know getting the price, being able to keep the motors more affordable. Do, what do you think about having some sort of rev limit rule on open engines for UMP? Do you think that's a good idea? I know in IMCA, as far as I'm aware, IMCA and USMTS they have a, a limit on how hard you can turn your motors. Do you think that's a good idea? I don't I don't know what I think about it I you know when you see guys blowing up motors all the time that's your competitors you don't like to see it because you're losing car counts but in the same token it's another guy you don't have to beat if they if they limit their own rpms their motors would last a lot longer so um, I'm not sure what the answer to that is I mean we we haven't ran a lot of gear for the last couple of years so we're not turning our motors that hard one is because the crate motor has a rpm limit and it really doesn't seem to slow us down any i mean it seems seems like maybe the car is even better so um, i don't i don't know what the answer is i mean rpms uh definitely make the car drive easier when you get it up above the you know that horsepower and torque curve if you come out of the corner and you're up at 
6,000 RPMs or even 7,000 RPMs, the, the motor doesn't gain a lot of torque and horsepower. It's falling off at that point, so it makes it easier to drive. But it seems like more and more people are blowing up motors all the time. So I really don't have a solid answer for that. I just, I mean, the claim obviously, the claim doesn't work. I mean, UMP's had to claim it. I don't think anybody's claimed a motor in probably 15 years or 20 years, however long UMP's been around. Okay, so I guess uh, another question I'd ask is, you know, I think the car counts haven't been bad um, this year. I mean, the car counts have been pretty good for the most part, but I think maybe down five to ten cars night you know at some of the tracks that we race at and one thing that I think I've kind of noticed and kind of put my finger on is it seems like maybe 10 years ago or maybe even five maybe let's say five to 15 years ago say about 2005 to 2015 there were a lot of guys that would maybe race one or two tracks and I, they would race there all the time like every time that track race they go there and then there was maybe some other guys like you and a few others that would run every track that would run. You'd run Lima Land, Montpelier, Kokomo. If Lima Land rained out, you'd go to Gas City. If Montpelier rained out, you'd go to Waynesfield or Eldora or Shady Hill. And basically, you'd run as much as you could at every track within a certain you know radius. But then there still were those guys that had cars they would only run maybe one night a week but they would always run at Montpelier they'd always run at Lima Land and there might be 15 to 20 guys that would only run one one or maybe two tracks and run them every week I think now it, it seems like that we're running against the same cars just at different tracks and we've kind of lost some of those guys that would just be a local racer and I mean I think I have some ideas as to why that is but do you agree with my assessment that basically you've got a bigger group of guys running every track and the, the group of guys that would maybe only run one or two tracks is almost gone or not there anymore? Do you agree with my assessment? And, you know, why do you think that is the case if, if you do agree with my assessment? Well, it has, I mean, it has to be the cost. I mean, when a guy, like, goes to the track and they got a $30 pit pass and you got your wife and a couple kids or whatever I mean you're talking $120 and if the if the tow money is a hundred bucks or whatever it is you didn't even give enough money to cover your to cover your uh, pit passes so you got rising costs on pit passes rising costs on fuel rising costs on tires tires are completely out of control and if a guy doesn't feel like he's got a chance of doing good, he just, if the weather looks a little bit off, he just stays home, you know. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say you're right. But, and I mean, it has to be the cost. There's nothing else it is, you know. Some of these guys are racing cars that are 10, 15 years old, and they feel like if I have to spend $50,000 on a roller, then I'm out. I'm not. I'm not going to do it anymore. Yeah, I, and I think it's twofold. Is one is 
the cost, but it's, I think, the perception that some people have that to be competitive, that they need to spend that kind of money to be competitive. And I don't necessarily think that's the, tr the truth, because there are other builders out there like ourselves and probably a few others where you could get a car cheaper, but the perception that, oh, I got to have a Longhorn and Elite, a lethal car to be competitive, I think that is probably hurting the sport because people just, they they don't think they can be competitive with what they got and they don't want to spend $35,000, dollars $45,000 on a roller to go race for $600 to win. So we're doing the best we can on our part of trying to build a car that's really fast and affordable to help people be competitive without having to spend that kind of money. And I hope people are willing to give us a chance. I mean, we ran a crate motor and you know, a car that probably would be about 25,000 or so, our car for our customer and the engine's about 12, and it's still 35,000, but if you already have an engine and a drive uh, and stuff, you could save some money, and if you're willing to do some of the work yourself, you could save some more money. But I think I think you could still have a turnkey car that's highly competitive for probably 35, if, if you've already got an engine and stuff. With your car, figuring 10,000 in for your engine, like what, what you maybe have in it or what it's worth for rebuild. I think you could still be competitive without having to spend eighty or ninety thousand dollars, which there are guys out there spending that kind of money. Um, so um, and it was kind of sidetracked from going talking about your racing career and a little bit about the business to talking about the class itself because this is the Dirt Modcast and I do want to make it mainly about Dirt Modifieds. Um, so all that being said. I hope that this hasn't been boring for you, and it, we have one a little over an hour, but um, hopefully you guys enjoyed listening to this podcast, and I'm going to look for other drivers to do interviews with, and I'll probably have Todd on here somewhat frequently to interview him, and maybe we'll be able to dive deeper into certain subjects um, instead of just covering everything briefly, but we are we started this right as we were leaving our shop. Now we are turning off of Indiana 3 onto 18. We're going by the giant man with the ice cream cone. We're almost to Montpelier Motor Speedway. It's pretty cloudy, but they have not canceled yet that I'm aware of. Um, is there anything that, that you'd like to say, Todd, about our conversation? Anything that you feel that came that you thought about that you weren't able to talk about yet before we wrap this up? And, and the first episode of the Dirt Modcast. Is this a good time to talk about our Florida deal that we got going, or should we wait and do it at another time? Um, well, we can talk about we can talk about that. Um, I was maybe going to interview the the driver. Um, I'll probably interview the driver maybe at the track just briefly to talk about what we're planning. But yeah, if you want to talk about what our, our plans for Florida are this year, and this episode being recorded. It's October 30th, 2021, and making plans for going to Volusia in February of 2022. So yeah, go ahead and talk about what we're planning for Florida this year. Well, we uh, we got a good cus customer named Eric Shepard, and he um, 
bought a new car from us and had really, really good success, and he really loves the car, and he's already ordered another new one. Um, his son drove it uh, the last couple races here, and he done really, really well. We watched the races. Uh, at Florence Speedway, where they race a lot. Yeah, at Florence lot. Speedway. I don't know if the DRC or who was videoing, but anyways, uh, done a very good job. Ended up second twice, had to lead a couple times, but he's... Uh, he wants to hang out with us, and, and uh, he wanted to know if he's going to race Florida. And I said, no, we're not. You know, it's you know really expensive. And and he said that he had rented a rented a house that we'd be more willing to stay in, and that he had offered his rig for us to tow it down in. And and uh, I thought, you know, it might be a good idea. And I'm not a spring chicken. Don't really care for big high speed tracks anymore. Uh, I like the bull rings where you have to finesse the car and really you know use your head seems like on some of these tracks it's just it's all out so i had a driver in mind and uh i i'd asked my wife what she thought about it and she told me that dylan woodling would be the only one that she thought of that came to her mind and i said that's exactly what my thought was and that's exactly what my son's thought was that Dylan runs good at Eldora he's he's younger um, he takes care of his equipment he conducts himself well and so we're gonna we ask him and he's all in so we're going to uh, go to Florida we're building a brand new car uh, Tyler's Tyler's getting the shocks put together for us and uh, we're gonna work with Eric Shepard and and uh, go to Florida and see what we can do with our new Avenger and see how Dylan likes it. All right, so there it is, folks. We are taking Dylan Woodland to Florida. I know a few people have found out, but we really haven't announced that publicly yet. So you're hearing it here first on the Dirt Podcast. Dylan Woodling from Warsaw, Indiana had a lot of success and been racing modifieds for quite a few years does really good on the big tracks he will be in the sherman enterprises house car in florida so what the plan is he brought his seat over last week to get the seat mounted in the frame so we are going to volusia is the plan and taking dylan Woodling as our driver and you know, hopefully we can have some a good showing down there i really feel confident that we'll have some good luck down there and hopefully we can show people that you don't have to spend fifty thousand dollars to be competitive to race mod fights so thanks for tuning in to episode one of the dirt modcast and we'll see you soon